Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Each episode, I'm talking to performers from film, television, and theater about one significant role in their career. It might not always be the role they're most famous for, but in each one, I'll be trying to find out about their preparation, the excitement, and the sense of nostalgia that goes with any key role in an actor's lifetime. Multi-award-winning actor Jonathan Price has been working in theater, film, and television for more than five decades. His work in theater includes an award-winning Hamlet at the Royal Court in 1980 and as the engineer in Miss Saigon in London and New York. He's appeared in films as eclectic as Evita, Tomorrow Never Dies, Glengarry Glen Ross, and The Age of Innocence. In 2019, he earned his first Academy Award nomination for his portrayal of Pope Francis in the film The Two Popes. His television work includes Thomas Wolsey and Wolf Hall, The High Sparrow in Game of Thrones, and Prince Philip in the final two seasons of The Crown. His breakthrough screen performance was in Terry Gilliam's satirical, dystopian black comedy, Brazil. And I was delighted he agreed to talk to me about that experience earlier this year. Okay, welcome to the show this week. And my guest today is the magnificent Jonathan Price, or Sir Jonathan Price, as we now call him. But, uh, and we'll be discussing the role of Sam Lowry in the fantastic film, Brazil, a Terry Gilliam's film from 1985, uh, which is one of my favorite films. Um, Jonathan, how are you? Uh, I'm very well. Thank you. Good. Yeah. Now, you know, as I say, Brazil is one of my favourite films. I've watched it many, many times. I'm always surprised it doesn't appear on the one of those top 10 Christmas film lists that we, we often see, because it is a Christmas film, isn't it? Well, it's, it's, there are scenes set at Christmas. It's, uh, it, often, it appears in the top 10 or top 50 cult films yeah. uh, on the lists which is not what we set out to. We set out to make a, a top 10 blockbuster. And uh, unfortunately, we got sidelined into being a cult. <laughs> but did you know Terry beforehand? Was he a friend? Um, no, not really a friend. I'd met him. Um, I knew Michael Palin mm-hmm. uh, a bit. Uh, but I met Terry at a screening at the National... Uh, film theatre uh, on the South Bank, uh, uh, all-day screening of Bertolucci's 1700s Part 1 and 2. And I was sat in front of them, him and Michael Palin. And um, either at the beginning, before the film or in the middle of the film, Terry tapped me on the shoulder and he said he'd seen me on television the night before mm-hmm. in a comedy, a half-hour pilot for a comedy. And um, he chatted to me a bit, and that was it. And the next thing I knew, 
he was offering me a role in Time Bandits. Yeah. And um, uh, I'd, I'd just finished doing uh, Hamlet at the Royal Court uh, for, I think it was 82 pounds a week. And I was absolutely broke. And I was offered two films. I was offered Time Bandits and I was offered Loophole. I see the puzzled expression on your face there. <laughs> Loophole. <laughs> Loophole was a film, uh, a bank robbery, which took place through the sewers and it got the way into the bank. And it, uh, I got the script and it, attached to it were um, Albert Finney and Martin Sheen. And I really could not see any merit in this script. Um, and I kept thinking, well, Albert Finney's doing it, Martin Sheen's doing it, must, must be, you know. So I went to meet the director. He'd been a production manager most of his life and it's going to be his first time directing. And I wasn't that impressed with him. He's a very nice man. And then I went away thinking, I don't know what the hell it is about this film that, you know, Albert Finney's doing it, Martin Sheen's doing it. And uh, then I got the offer in and it, uh, it paid at least twice as much as what Time Bandits was going to pay. Yeah. And like I said, I was absolutely broke. So I went for Loophole. And, um, you know, two things happened. Uh, Time Bandits went on to become this uh, epic, uh, legendary film without me. Mm -hmm. And uh, Loophole died to death with me. But I, have it was, um, I have to check Loophole. Later. Loophole? No, don't, don't waste your time. But they... <laughs> they um, I'd meet the, I'd, we were filming in Bray Studios and every morning I'd meet the director, I'd get up the car and he, I'd say, how's it going, John? And he'd say, well, you know, John, has done really well. Well, what can you expect? We've got Albert, we've got Martin, we've got yourself, we've got Tony, we've got... And um, I'd talk to other members of the cast and I'd say, why, why are you doing this film? Um, they'd say, well, I heard you were doing it and I heard <laughs> Albert Trenny was doing it. <laughs> and this went, we traced the line back all the way to... Um, I even went into Martin Sheen's trailer where he was sitting with his head in his hands and I said, why are you doing this film? And he said, well, when I was a young man, I, I was an usher in the theatre in New York and Albert was doing Martin Luther and I said, I'd, I'd always want to work with him. So this offer came along. Anyway, we traced it all the way back to Albert who was sitting, he was then in 1982 or something, mm -hmm. uh, sitting on a million quid. So that's the reason he was doing it. And everybody and, else uh, was there because everybody of him. Everybody else was doing it because of him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, anyway, he was, a, he was a charming man. He was very Albert and he was, uh, he was delightful. And, uh, but so, anyway, but that, if you didn't do Time Bandits, but then in that yeah. sort of Gilliam trilogy, the next one is, is Brazil, isn't it? Really? Brazil, yeah. And he, he used to say whenever we were filming and uh, uh, there was ever a difficult moment uh most mostly a difficult physical moment mm -hmm. um he would say this is uh this is my revenge uh, in fact the whole thing is my revenge for you <laughs> turning down time but it's um, as, you, as you're so fighting you that samurai warrior and stuff, yeah right? uh, well hanging from dangling from a wire oh god um usually you know at the top, at the top of the studio or it's trying to a, act in front of a, a pyre of burning tires. Oh, my God. I mean, it's such anyway. a massively visual experience. It's sort of, yeah. I, mean, I mean, and obviously Terry has become synonymous with this type of filmmaking. But what was, when the script arrived, what was the script like? Was, does he fill in all the gaps? Does he write all those scenes and descriptions? Well, the, 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 film, um, the film uh, bears a lot of resemblance to the original script, but... The, the main difference is that uh, for Terry, the uh, impetus was uh, for writing it was this man who lived in his dreams. So the, um, the, the vision of Sam Lowry flying and avenging and, you know, fighting for the damsel and fighting for society, that was, that was what Terry's uh, instinct, his instincts lay there with that side of the film. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I, th I see. I, I think I remember there was a lot of storyboarding came with the script of the images right. and long descriptions of the images, mm -hmm. and um, and then there was like the the real life story, Sam's life. Um, but he started. We started shooting Sam's uh, life experience, the, the work, and the mm -hmm. started shooting all those things first, and. Slowly but surely, Terry was 
excising lots of the special effects stuff, lots of the flying. Um, so they, they came down to, um, yeah, there was, they, they came down to the minimal uh, part of the story. He got more interested in, in people. In, character, um, in the characters. In, in characters, yeah. And, and do I you think, think that, is, that came sorry. from you? Is there a collaboration there with him where you're talking about Sam, talking about motivation? Do you have no, that type of relationship? I didn't say, uh, no, I didn't say that, that, you know, I think, Terry, you should put the camera on me, you know, all the time, watch me acting. No. And uh, um, he, uh, I think we, what we did talk about, we talked about the next day's shooting uh, every night. And I was in, I think there's very little of the film that I'm not in. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was in, you know, every day, and it went on for months. Mm -hmm. But we'd always uh, look at the next day's filming the night before. And uh, if it, not much, so much a physical rehearsal, but a, a reading through the script mm -hmm. and uh, rewriting bits and mostly rewriting and editing, uh, very little adding. Um, yeah, so the one of the joys of working with Terry then was that uh, he didn't claim to know anything about acting. Mm -hmm. So once you were employed, he would take care of the visuals and know where to put the camera. And the acting is what you did. Um, but and, then who uh, are you as the actor? Who are you? Yeah. Look, are you totally self-sufficient as far as tone, pitch? Sort of, you know, because the film yeah. treads a very fine line between this dystopian nightmare, but it has great comedic side to it as well, yeah. in an absurdist way. And yeah. you know that that can that's a very very that's a tightrope, isn't it? As far as performance is concerned, are you the, the individual keeping an eye on that, or is or do you have a relationship with with him where he can step in and say, "Let's pull this back" or "Let's push it a bit further" or what? Uh... I would, um, it was a bit like show and tell, that I would present, you know, we'd, we'd start shooting the scene and he'd look at it and uh, usually you knew it was working if he laughed <laughs> or if he <laughs> laughed, usually during a take. Um, mm -hmm. Or I mean, there were little moments when I, when he said, no, I don't think that's, um, I don't think that's going to work. And I, and I had to say, look, trust me, it's, it will work. But mostly he, he trusted me and I, um, yeah, he'd, he'd employed, I mean, my job, I, like I say, I was there every day and then we'd get uh, the visiting uh, people come and you'd work with Bob Hoskins for a week or so and, uh, um, and Palin and uh, they were, it, uh, it was great because, because it was a long shoot, as I say, but uh, every time it was enlivened by new blood mm -hmm. um until robert de niro came right what, <laughs> what happened then and it's kind of hit the hit the buffers i'd um i feel free to talk about this because um i know terry's talked about it in the past mm -hmm. is that i um de niro uh found it difficult um uh, to play that role and had to be persuaded to play it um because uh, um, his character is the, the kind of the hero who comes in and, you know, he's like the cavalry coming in and saving things. He's the vigilante, a, isn't he? As a plumber, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was quite a sell for, for Terry to, to say, you no, know, because he's used to be, then, you know, he, he was seen as, you know, taxi driver and all those other things, mm. the, the kind of the, uh, boldly, the, the, the bad guy. Um, and this time he was going to be the good guy. And um, it took a bit of persuading. Two things happened. He took persuading to uh, take the role, uh, but he was instrumental in my being offered the role. Okay. Because um, Terry uh, very much wanted me to do it. Um, at the, I had to do... Uh, screen tests to satisfy the uh, producers. And um, at the time, I just, I think I was in the middle or I just finished playing Martin Luther uh, for the BBC. So I had my hair cut like a medieval monk with a tonsure cut into it. 
you're trying to do a screen test as a romantic hero, but you're looking like a medieval monk. And um, Maggie Gilliam, Terry's wife, who was uh, then a makeup artist, had lots of old python wigs that she got out of a box. <laughs> and she tried to, address, uh, tried to dress them on me to make me look good. Anyway, I went through all that humiliation. And, um, but the, it's, this decision still hadn't been made by the producers. The, essentially, the main producer, Arne and Milchin. Um, and uh, he wanted to meet me. So uh, Terry and I went off to the St. James's Club uh, to this enormous uh, suite. And we're sitting there talking, and um, I've got the absolute sense that Arnon Milchin does not want to cast me in this role. Um, and it was going quite difficultly. And then I saw... Um, down the corridor, I saw Robert De Niro come out of a bedroom. And, uh, fucking hell, Robert De Niro's there. And, um, and then he comes and joins, he comes into the uh, main room and he's got his son with him who's about eight or ten or something, maybe. And they um, say hello and hello to De Niro, hello to the son. And De Niro points at me and he says uh, to um, Raphael, his son, he said, do you know who this is? And uh, Raphael looked at me and said, no. And he said, this is Mr. Dark. And I'd done a film, Something Wicked This Way Comes, where I played yeah. uh, Mr. Dark, the kind of devilish figure. Yeah, and Raphael looked in, <gasps> looked in shock when he saw me in horror. And it was like, oh, you know, everything's fine. I'm not really uh, a nasty man. And we... Continued with the pleasantries for a bit, then off he went. And I felt emboldened by this. And I said to Arnon Milchin, uh, uh, if, you'd, um, if you'd seen me, I, I said, did you see uh, something wicked this week comes? He said, no. And I said, well, if you had seen me, you certainly wouldn't be casting me as Sam Lowry. <laughs> and he said, Jonathan, you're sitting in front of me now. I still wouldn't cast you as Sam Lowry. And I thought, oh, fucking hell. And uh, shortly after, very shortly after that, I made my excuses and I said, I, I think I should be going. And uh, I left the meeting and I went home and uh, I am um, completely depressed by this and what had happened and what he said to me and other things he'd said to me. And then the phone rang and it was, uh, it was Terry. And I said, fuck, you know, Terry, you know, that's just terrible, terrible. Uh, he's not going to offer it. And he said, no, 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 it's, it's an offer. You're doing it. I said, what are you talking about? He said he wouldn't cast me. No, no, he said, he said, Bobby was impressed by you. And if Bobby's impressed by you, he's impressed by you. Wow. So it was on the strength of De Niro saying, hey, he's good. He's, he's good. Um, that I was then offered the part. In a scenario like that, how do you look after yourself? I mean, where there's, there's someone else who is... I don't know. I, kn I knew I had the support of Terry. Mm -hmm. And um, and it, it, you get to feel it's a bit like red buses when you're filming for an extended length of time. Mm -hmm. that if that if something doesn't work, there'll be another <laughs> in a minute. Right. But I, I didn't... Um, I, I felt... Uh, I was just very confident. I was a lot younger. Um, and, um, you know, I come from a, a situation that you know very well, the Liverpool Everyman, yeah. where that was my uh, first job. And I was there for you know, nearly two years and it, that was my training. And it was, um, we used to call it uh, Everyman for himself, <laughs> the Everyman Theatre. And it was, it was, it was at times on that stage, it was a battleground. You had to fight for to hear, let your voice be heard at times. Not necessarily just for the audience, but with the other <laughs> actors. It was very competitive, but in a very, um, in a fun way. In a, in a way, it was a, it was a battle true. all the time. But it's true at the Everyman, you were the artistic director there as well, weren't you? I, I, for a short period of time, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
And, and that was um, a tough role, wasn't it? I mean, you had actors there like Julie Walters and Pete Pottersway, Bill Nye. I mean, it was. Well, a I tough... employed those people. Yeah, but it was I a mean, tough I... role to be in there with them, wasn't it? Must have been. No, no, they yeah. were. They were. It was for Julie Walters. That was her first job. Right. That uh, we auditioned her, and um, I think Bill Nye it was his second job. Postlethwaite had turned me down initially uh, to do a play at the Playhouse, and then he came to realize the error of his ways <laughs> and came to join us at the Everyman. They were, but no, it was, uh, I, would, I had a good working relationship with them. I'd never wanted to direct again. Um, but uh, on the whole, it was, um, no, it was very good. And, you know, Bill, um, I remember auditioning Bill and uh, he kept, he was sitting on a bench doing, I think he was doing a pinter. And he started the speech and he went, uh, sorry, can I, can I start again? And he goes, yeah, sure. No, 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 no. Oh, no sorry, can I, um, oh, can I, can I, can I start again? Yeah, sure. And this went on. And I thought, this guy is either the worst actor I've ever seen or a genius. <laughs> so I took it. I took a chance on him. And of course, Bill is, uh, has that wonderful, um, Ability to sound as if it's, um, you know, he's, been, he's saying it for the first time. Um, and then years later in Pirates of the Caribbean, you're acting with him when he, it is true that when you're acting with him on screen, when in real life, he yeah. doesn't, obviously doesn't have all the CGI stuff on. So is he in like some black leotard or something? Well, he was in a, no, it was a grey leotard. <laughs> it was a grey leotard covered in, um, uh, orange balls and things for the CGI. And they, um, that, that bit of the Pirates of the Caribbean, there, was, there wasn't much for me to do. And I um, was on the point of saying no. And they said, no, no, we really want you to be in it. And we've written this, uh, this scene, especially for you, a really good scene. And um, that was the scene with Bill. And we could not do it for laughing. I couldn't <laughs> take it seriously. He couldn't take it seriously. Uh, to the point where the, the writer came on the set and he was really upset because he thought we were taking the piss out of the text. And he was thought, but I've, this is, I, you know, I spent a lot of time, I've written especially for you and you, you're, you're not doing it. You're laughing all the time. Anyway, um, we cut to uh, the premiere of that uh, Pirates of the Caribbean and I'm in Los Angeles for the premiere at uh, Disneyland. It's huge. They created this massive outdoor cinema and um, massive screen. And we're all presented to the, the audience. But, and then we go and take our seats. And uh, my son, uh, Gabriel, was studying film in New York at the time. And uh, he, I asked him to come to LA for the premiere with me. We're sitting there. And two things happened. One, we came to that scene the whole reason I was there and uh, they'd cut it and they hadn't told me. And uh, I, Gore Babinski, the director was sitting a couple of rows behind me. I turned and stared him out. But he would not look at me. And this is while Keith Richard had a blanket over his head and had fallen to sleep halfway through. And, um, and then the film went up, war on and on. And uh, I turned to my um, very uh, film savvy film studio son and I said Gabe what's going on and he said dad I haven't a fucking clue <laughs> this was while Johnny Depp was running up and down the sand endlessly anyway God. that's my part of the guy being yeah but so my one chance with Bill later um, yeah and I never no it was it was a great time it was great to direct um Postlethwaite and um but then, Julie, I mean, that was, you know, it is rep, isn't it? I mean, it's, is it true that you were doing Winnie the Pooh in the day and Lear in the evening sometimes and stuff like that? I mean, yeah, that was to get back to that thing with De Niro, the, you know, your training in the British yeah. theatre was very much about Alan Dosser was running the Everyman before you took over. It was very much a community based theatre. You were, you were doing many, many shows, many different characters. The audience yeah. were within punching distance slightly. And certainly, you know, the Liverpool audience is very, as I know myself, very idiosyncratic and sort of 
vocal and supportive, but also in your face slightly. I mean, yeah. it's a, it is a great training, isn't it? Oh, it, it, it was definitely. I mean, it, uh, I, I don't know what would have happened to me if, um, if Dossa hadn't come to, to see my final show at Rada. Wow. And, and, uh, and of course, well, Liverpool, Liverpool was a very important place for you. I mean, you're, you're North Wales, but you would go to Liverpool as a teenager, wouldn't you, as well? Yeah, it was uh, not to see theatre. It was to go to the cavern and uh, yeah. to go to, uh, well, the Everyman Theatre when it was Hope Hall yeah. and was a, a music venue. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd, I'd been in college, in uh, doing teacher training college in Ormskirk. Yeah. Um, and I would go to the, yeah, I was, I was an art student originally. And then I went to Ormskirk and I had to do a subsidiary course. And I was told by friends, the easiest course to do that required the least amount of work was the drama course. So I thought <laughs> that, that sounds like me. So um, I signed up for the drama course and there were only three of us on it. And, um, but my tutor was a man called Jerry Dawson, who you must have heard of, who ran yeah. Unity Theatre in Liverpool. Mm. And I started working with them. And ironically, we would do our amateur productions. They would take over the Everyman Theatre for a couple of weeks. And we did better business as an amateur company than the Everyman Company did. We'd fill the place. But, it, um, but going to see theatre in Liverpool, I initially graduated towards the playhouse mm-hmm. because uh the reputation of the everyman worried me i didn't it, it, to me it was uh it, it was like experimental theater and i thought well, it's not for me it's all very anarchic and i and i was would happily go to the playhouse where you could go to the box office you buy a ticket and you go and sit in a proper seat and you'd see a proper play traditional and uh, eventually i got i went to the everyman and saw plays and thought this is the kind of theater i love and for me it was very it was confidence building and boosting i remember and i just found it i've been going through old boxes of with labels called memorabilia on them and i found a letter that i never posted but i'd written it during the uh tech and dress rehearsal of uh, measure for measure which was the first play I did at the Everyman where I played Elbow, the clown. Mm-hmm. And um, I hated it. And uh, one particular actor uh, was terrible to me. And um, it, he felt it. I was getting in his way all the time. And because uh, I was, <laughs> I was pushy, uh, mm-hmm. even though I was playing a very small role. Um, and um, Actually, this letter started after one, an early performance. And I was, I was elbow in the first half, a henchman in the second half, and I stood behind the Duke. And um, Lucio came to make his case to the Duke, and I stepped forward as the bodyguard and hit him with my truncheon to the ground, knocked him to the ground. And as I stepped back into the shadows, I put my finger to my ear and scratched it. And the... <laughs> The audience were just watching me and they fell about. And this particular actor then got me in the in the wings and said, Don't you ever fucking do that when I'm a, you know, all this stuff. And that's when I wrote the letter saying, This life is not for me. Wow. I, I hate it. I'm gonna do something else. I don't want to be an actor. I don't want to have to deal with this kind of thing. And da 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 da. Anyway, eventually I be, I became the person who would say, Don't you fucking do that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, one thing about the Everyman, and it's you know, I, I again, I heard you say this because I was I was one of the last productions in there before they knocked it down and rebuilt it. And we were both talking about the fact that they need to keep that sort of footprint. They need to keep that sort of connection with the audience because that added to it. It was dangerous because you were right with yeah. the audience, but it also had to this frisson that you had every night, which yeah. was wonderful. Yeah. But to come back to Brazil, there's it, you talk about it being a long shoot. It was a long shoot. And obviously we know that you never tell any uh, drama, TV drama or movie in chronological order. How are you, again, how do you look after yourself? You say that Terry is someone who's letting you get on with it and let, you know giving you the space. How are you yeah. keeping your, are you keeping notes on your uh, 
chronological uh, uh, performance? Are you making sure that, you know, that your your tone is the right thing? Is it is that all down to you in this in this performance? It's if I say I'm I don't have um, a, a working method. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I know other actors who who do and would be um, scrupulous about the the arc that the person goes on, but I it, I'm I'm in mostly instinctive, mm-hmm. and I began to realize it wasn't that wasn't my job to uh, preserve the arc of the character. I would rely on the director to. Um, yeah, it's, you know, we work with the director and uh, that he would shape a performance. Obviously, you don't go in there thinking, you know, um, I'm going to, yesterday I was lying on the floor, today I'm going to jump up and down. It, there aren't those big switches. Mm. But what it's something I find uh, when film is good um, and it's going well, it, uh, you do what you do on the day mm. and you react a bit to the day um so uh not that you again uh you go in i've had a bad day oh so i'm gonna have a bad day it's um it's whatever happens on the day some sometimes you, yeah. and you, you're not gonna vary a lot from the character but i like to be open to um what if i have a term for anything uh, the happy accident mm. where things happen oh that's interesting you know you were playing off somebody else, you're listening to somebody else, um, and something happens on the day. It's, it's and I, I kind of, uh, I mean, you do a lot of voiceovers, but um, I learned a, a while ago never to ask for another take, never to ask for a take from me, yeah. because um, my impression of what it should be like isn't necessarily what they want to hear or indeed what's coming across. You know, so I never look at the monitor ever mm-hmm. um, because uh, I, what I don't want to do is to adjust my performance or shape my performance from what I perceive to be on the screen mm-hmm. because that probably isn't what other people are receiving. But it's also that thing that, like, that you, don't, you, don't, you don't want to be you don't want to be looking at it externally. You want to be experiencing it internally, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And you can, you know, sometimes if I if I can't get the blocking right, and uh, they'll say, look, if if you come in from here or if you stand here, it's better than oh great, I'll do that. Um, then I'll look at the monitor. But um, but uh, you know, I've had the experience of uh, working with American actors, especially who had sensed they have a bit of power, looking at the monitor after every take. Mm. And they, they alter their performance radically from mm. what they perceive they to be the truth of their performance. And it's often nowhere near as good. But also the um, other thing, the, the thing that tripped me up sometimes, and, and this isn't just American actors, it's not, I don't want to get into that UK, US thing, but that I have worked with actors who also have a coach, they will have, uh, they will have someone who's not employed by the production or part of the production. They, it's their person, and it's yeah. an acting coach, and that's a very weird for me. I don't know whether you've ever had that experience. It was a weird dynamic for me to sort of go, well, my acting coach sort of is my director in a way, but yeah. if, there's an, if there's another person in that chain, it's it can through yeah. through me anyway. Have you ever yeah, had yeah. that experience? Um, I, I've been aware of it, yes, and they um, it uh, it doesn't always help because uh, I mean I've even had it on um, even with directors. Mm-hmm. Well, my experience from uh, early on in theatre was that it was a company, and it was uh, there was a routine that you'd uh, you go into. Well, I don't think we ever had previews at the Everyman. Sometimes we'd open without a dress rehearsal. But uh, whatever happened, the director would come and see a performance. The next day, you'd sit around and you'd get public notes, and uh, you'd all be aware of we're all on the same page, you know. And uh, more and more directors uh, don't like that uh, public approach to giving notes and uh, rehearsals, and um, because I think they feel it's uh, they lose a bit of their power if they open it up to the company and they open the, they lose a bit of the power to manipulate an actor 
I mean, I had it um, uh, in a particular production um, where the actress had a really good relationship with on stage. And then uh, one night she, she was a little further upstage and I thought, why did she do that? It's not as good as, oh, well. And I carried on. Eventually she was so far upstage, I was having to turn my back to the audience. And I went there and I said, why are you upstage like this? What, why, why are you doing this? And she said, well, the director asked me to. The director. The director. And I said, well, I've wasted a week <laughs> thinking, why are you, why are you upstage? Yeah. Um, and he, he felt he couldn't share it. And I, I asked him, um, would he please give company notes? Mm. You know, it, it, he would come in at the beginning of the week and he preferred to give to go to dressing rooms and give notes individually. And it, uh, I, I, I can't. I think that's, like a, that. I think it's essential to have company notes in the sense yeah. that all the company can hear the director sort of how he's, you know, how he or she is addressing individuals. And, yeah. and in, in a way, then you sort of, you might, you know, we all get, take things personally sometimes that you don't really take it personally. It's about the collective responsibility yeah, for the yeah. text. And the, as soon as yeah. you start getting people in corners, you know, in any profession, regardless, you know, yeah. it creates some sort of paranoia and misinformation and Chinese yeah. whispers. And it's just not great. I find yeah, that really no, hard. No, no. I know you said you didn't want the American system, but I think it is, uh, it is a feature of the American system because they, uh, many actors don't, uh, they go straight into film. They don't have a theatre experience. They don't necessarily have a theatre school experience. And they work with, you know, coaches anyway. Mm. You know, in New York, you have your acting class and it's about you going and doing monologues and then presenting your monologue the next week for your acting coach. And so it's all part of that system where it's, it is about the individual. And for a lot of uh, actors in the, in film anyway, where you get directors who don't know about acting uh, or how to shape a character, it's a self uh, it's self preservation thing. Mm-hmm. You know, otherwise they're they're not going to know what the hell they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not going to get any help. We'll be back with more chat after this. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, you're listening to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Now, back to this week's episode. 
but also for for you from from one going coming from here to there going from uk to america or working in american stuff there is a sense of needing to suddenly look after yourself in a different way isn't there there's a way that you you know you you're you're suddenly not in the system i think be it british tele- i think that's why they like british actors on american television but there's a there's a sense that coming from you know i i got a great note once from a dop who said to me look make sure when I was directing, he said to me, make sure you direct the show, not the schedule. And I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, of course. But there are times as a British actor, the part of our tradition is looking after the day. You are aware of the schedule, aren't you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and there's this responsibility that a bit bit like the clapper loader with Robert Dino saying, Hey mate, we've all got homes to go to. Do you know what I mean? There's, There's just something in that, that I sort of like actually. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. sometimes it can get against the grain, but mostly I like it. And also yeah. to come back to Brazil with Terry and Brazil, and I know there's CGI in it, but those sets are real, aren't they? I mean, there's something about there's a lot go, there's a lot there to help you. Those those restaurant scenes, you know, the scenes in your yeah. office with uh, Ian Holmes, stuff like that. The choreography that he's doing around it with Ian Richardson. Yeah. When you, I mean, yeah. that's all there to help you. You just got to, you've got to inhabit that, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And there was, um, you were surrounded by the visuals all the time, and some, most of the time, they worked for you. Um, you have to get used to um, thinking, I've got to. This is a really important dialogue scene, and uh, in the background, um, there's a pile of burning tires because he wants a smoke effect, and they didn't yeah. have little smoke guns, and he burned tires, and everyone would go home with soot up their nostrils, oh. and or there was an explosion, or there was something, and that was. Um, I mean, you know, the, <laughs> that was the thing that reminded me most about the Everyman. Is there's something going on in the background? I mean, the, the star, the star, when you know the the bottle uh, flat is raided by these sort of you know SAS type guards. I mean, from then yeah. on, it sets the tone straight off. So you're yeah. you're sort of in this amazing experience of it. What was it like filming those 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 scenes? Were they? I mean, it does get very very. Do you take that work home with you, or are you able no, to sort of no. just? You don't. I never take. I never take it home. Well, you must um, take the exhaustion home. I mean, days are long, aren't they? You must take. I was that young. <laughs> <laughs> I was in my thirties. I was in my prime, yeah. um, and we do you know minimum twelve-hour days, and uh, yeah. um, no, but you don't it, live it. You don't live it in your life. No, you'd have to ask Kate about whether I do, but I, I, no, right. no, I, it's, uh, I don't take it. I, I read, I'm always fascinated. I, I think sometimes I should get my PR together a bit more about, uh, the pain that I suffer from my heart. <laughs> um, I, it's, I've uh, suffered now it's your turn sort of stuff. Yeah. I, um, I find that, uh, the art is, um, it's an exploitation and uh, a resolving of my suffering in a way. Right. Um, I've worked out, you know, it's it's for a lot of the time it's it's been my uh, living, but it's also been my therapy, and it's also yeah. been a way of uh, dealing with a lot of issues, yeah, and maybe a way to uh, run away from a lot of issues as well. But, yeah, um, I, I feel that as well. That you can disappear into stuff and sort of, but also play out things that are happening a bit like you were saying before about responding to the day you know for me whenever i'm working on a script sometimes i'll be working on it i'm making notes and stuff but when i arrive there there's a set or the other actor is doing something i have to be alive to the day but also i have to be alive to my own self in that day itself yeah yeah but if you see if you looked at any of my scripts over the years um i i think scripts when I was even at the drama school I've still got some scripts from drama school where I've made a few notes but I I don't I don't make a note and I don't um maybe I should but uh, um you know I sometimes I'll go I, I will I won't even you know a lot of actors uh, we um highlight your role on a page if I highlight my role it's so I can have a visual image of where my next line comes in. Um, but I don't make any notes. 
Mm-hmm. No, but I, at I think, the end of the, uh, can you let it go at the end of the day? I mean, are you someone who is, you know, uh, if particularly in the theatre, do you just are you? Uh, sometimes when I'm in the theatre, I wake up and I think, <clears throat> oh, how am I going to do it tonight? You know, if my day is full of waiting for that moment in the evening, are you able to sort of inhabit your day totally, even if, when you know you're in the theatre in the evening? Yeah, I think there's there's always something in the back of your mind that you're going to be somewhere that night. Um, uh, but I quite, I quite enjoy because I, I enjoy I enjoy going into the theatre and I enjoy being with the, the other, especially being with other people. Mm. Um, and um, it's become because I've, I've been all through pandemic and stuff. I've, I've made a few uh, TV programs and, and I'm filming now. And the the um, because we're all wearing masks and. Uh, you don't sit around chatting anymore. The experience is, I'm finding it more and more unsatisfactory. Yes. And uh, you don't feel as, there's been odd times on the crown when you've been caught, say the whole family is being called. And uh, you do get a chance to go on the side and have a coffee. And suddenly you find you're laughing, you're uh, swapping stories, you're enjoying the day. Yeah. And um, but most of the time, it's it's. I realise it's miserable without that interaction. Yeah, but I just found the fact that you couldn't tell whether anyone was smiling at you. You know, you'd walk onto the set or something, and usually yeah. you know, you're saying morning or whatever, and you can see people sort of acknowledging you. But with the mask, you saw yeah, oh, nobody's enjoying that. <laughs> yeah, quite... I, I've got very good at mime. I'm very big with my gestures right. now. Smiling um, with the eyes. Smiling with the eyes, love. Yeah. yeah. And how and, uh, are you with with something like Brazil when you went to see the final uh, screening? When you went to, I don't know whether you got a private screening or whatever. What what um, what's it like for you to watch? I know you don't watch the monitor when you're working, but what's it like to watch no. the final product? Do you know, I can't remember the first time I saw it because uh, I was often going into the cutting room and uh, seeing what Terry had put together. Um, it just felt I, I don't remember this. Uh, no, I remember going to see other films that I've been in. And how's that? And uh, being <laughs> shocked. Uh, and a lot of some films I, I know I will never see. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, only, there's only one film that I um, got really uh, emotionally wrapped up in while I was watching it, and that was Carrington. Yes. And I knew what was going to happen, mm-hmm. and I died. Mm-hmm. And. Um, and that was all right because I I'd been there for that. I, I knew what happened. Um, and then when you know that she is going to shoot herself, um, I found it unbearable. Yeah. And I just went into the uh, the men's room uh, as the credits, and I was sobbing. Yeah. And um, but mostly. No, you know, you, you react to things in different ways. I remember, um, and I've never, I don't think I've ever done this, was I, I had uh, the, uh, a screening of the two popes mm-hmm. um, because it was uh, gonna, not going to be seen on the screen for a while. It was going to be on Netflix and all that stuff. So I had a screening for friends. And I don't do that very often, but I, was, uh, I had seen it and I was really proud of it. So I was very happy to uh, invite friends to come and see it, but most of the time. But you say about, you know, you don't make notes and stuff, but do you do research? I mean, you did do research on the two popes, didn't you? I mean, you went to Buenos Aires and you did, I mean, you do do research, don't you? I did the amount of, you know, I've um, I've often uh, made this quip that uh, I do research when the film's over because I have to do all the interviews. <laughs> You read, you read the books afterwards. Yeah, because the journalist is going to say, "So, how did you how did you build this role?" Well, I <laughs> looked back and um, I, I was I, I am I'm an instinctive actor, and if the if the script is good and right, I a lot of the research has been done by the writer, mm, so yes. I don't need. If the script is good and the script of the two popes was brilliant, everything was there. Um, 
But Charlie, and, when, when uh, you saw when when Pope Francis was elected Pope, you must have looked at the TV and thought, if they make a film of his life and they don't cast me, I'm going to go crazy because you look so. No, like I'm, no I, I remember thinking if they, oh, I remember being pissed off when the internet was full of these images, and you know it, it, it wasn't exactly Cary Grant, you know. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, if, I'm, if they offer me that role, I'll be well pissed off. Um, and uh, yeah, my. Son Gabriel sent me a text because the internet was full of it. He said, Dad, are you the Pope? <laughs> um, but th there was a, lo a lot of comfort to be gained from that in that uh, there was, I wasn't a million miles from looking like him. Mm. Um, and also, I remember uh, the last day of filming, I mean, it, it, again, that had gone on for months with a brilliant director, yeah. Fernando Morales. Yeah. And every, everyone was wonderful. Tony Hopkins was fantastic to work with. Mm -hmm. And my last day of filming, and I, it's, we're in the uh, set of the Sistine Chapel. Talk about not having to, you know, work. There yeah. was this... Not green screen. ...replica yeah. um, that they'd built. And um, I get up from the, behind this, the screen... In the, in the chapel and I walked diagonally across the room and diagonally across the screen on my way out and um, I think that was my last shot certainly in the Sistine Chapel and uh, Fernando who had been with me for months the director he said Jonathan it's wonderful wonderful you have embodied everything about this man you your walk, your walk is exactly like the folks. I didn't have the heart to tell him, but no, Fernando, that's how I walk. That's my walk. I, I've, got, I've got a dodgy knee. And <laughs> all my life, all my life, even from a, through, you know, I remember the teenage people asking me, uh, why are you limping? I'm not limping. I've got, what, this is how I walk. Oh. Um, and sure enough, Pope Francis, he's got a dodgy hip. And he's got this slight role, and um, he walks. I remember my mother used to walk like him. Mm -hmm. The arthritis, a slight roll, right. just trying to get the legs moving. Um, so I didn't have the heart to tell Fernando that that's how I walk naturally. It's, a, it's um, an amazing performance, and I think you know it's what I love about the film is it doesn't shy away from the big issues because you know I mean yeah. I think you did say once about when you were in Buenos Aires and you met people like ministers and priests and stuff that Pope Francis, they, they weren't totally supportive of his history and stuff because of the regime that he'd been a yeah, minister yeah. in. And, you know, the film doesn't shy away from that at all. And no, that. but I, as a, in a, my time with the Pope, I got the best of him mm. because I got him, uh, you saw something of me as the, the priest but uh, mostly it was, uh, you know, from becoming Pope onwards. Yeah. And, um, and it was important that I, there was one uh, priest that I did meet in Buenos Aires and talk to. Um, you know, I, I, did, I did do some research there. Yes, I, <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't there on false pretenses taking the money. Um, <laughs> just, uh, oh, no, so I can, I can do Pope Francis. I know, I know how he walks. Um, and I was talking to this priest who'd worked under him when he was the Archbishop of Buenos Aires. And um, I said, what was he like? And uh, he said, that, uh, we didn't like him. Really? Because the world had this image of this fantastic guy. And I said, really? What? what uh? He said, in fact, when, um, when we saw him on the uh, balcony, when he became Pope, we didn't recognize him. I said, why? What? He said, because he was smiling. And he was known as the man who never smiled in Buenos Aires. And he was, and that just, you just, you just have to know that. Yeah, that's um, Why didn't he smile? Now, why is he smiling? Mm. Um, and then I, I sought out some more um, video of him when he was being interviewed by his, uh, his peers, his other bishops, about his possible involvement with the colonels. And there are two tables it's um, on either side of him and he's sitting at a table and he looks like grim death and uh, he's sitting there and he's drumming his fingers on the table and again I thought that told me all this 
his physicality told me everything I needed to know what he was thinking. He did not want to be there. He was drumming his fingers, creating his own time. You know, I'm in this time. You can say what you want. You're not going to get to to me or through me. Um, and he put this little wall of, around himself, and he was, you know, obviously denying everything. Interesting. And it's interesting. He's never. He's been to other parts of Latin America. He's never been back to uh, Buenos Aires yet. And there's two. And possibly two things, because he wasn't that happy there, but also he uh, has strong disagreements with the present regime. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's essentially, uh, I think, a really good man, a really good man. And is it true that, that that priest that you spoke to in Buenos Aires, who said they, they didn't like him, didn't he bless you at the end of your time with him? And wasn't that yeah. quite, that was quite emotional, wasn't it? I burst into tears, yeah. And what, what, <laughs> I because burst into we, tears now thinking about it. But you... I don't know. It was, well, yeah, because your own, your own faith is an interesting, or one's own faith is different, is interesting to talk about. But when you get blessed like that and sort of blessing your journey, how did, why, yeah. what happened to you at that point? It was just very, um, I don't know, it, I can't explain it. Uh, I just had a, an emotional reaction to it. Um, I don't know. Right. I don't know. It was, it was just, um, uh, we'd, we'd have, to another, have to have another podcast for why <laughs> I would find that. Uh, um, because I'd always thought, you know, um, when I was growing up and then I grew up in the Presbyterian mm-hmm. church in Wales, and um, eventually it didn't mean anything to me as a teenager, like a lot of us, and I never went to chapel again. Um, and I used to say to myself, and because uh, um, I, uh, was, I was afraid uh, of getting old and afraid of death. Mm-hmm. And um, I used to say to myself, well, it's, it's all right, but by the time I'm 60, I'll have found religion again. And everything will be okay. That'll take care of it. And of course, you get to 60 and you don't. And then you suddenly realize a man in Buenos Aires is a priest who is just uh, has this aura of goodness and uh, he's got his life sorted, blesses you. Mm-hmm. And bless my family. That was the other thing that uh, right. it just felt, um, oh, fuck, you know. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I should uh, <laughs> yeah. go to and church I, I, again or something. I think it's a really wonderful story about being open to that and sort of embracing it. Yeah. As I have got older, and I'm 75 this year, I've, uh, I've become less afraid of old age. Mm-hmm. Um, to, I have to remind myself what age I am when I'm struggling up a fucking ladder. Or My, my dad was uh, two years dead by now. Mm. You know, lots of our parents were so oh, too... Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I always thought that you know, my, my, my dad died at 54, I think 55. And I always thought, well, if I get that, I'm all right, you know, and I'm beyond yeah. that now. And it, but it was where I gauge my yeah. life. I used to, my, my uh, maternal grandfather, who was the only grandparent, I, I never knew my grandparents, but I, he was one I was mostly aware of. He was the one that was, he was survived the longest of any of them. And, uh, I was always told that he died when he was 45 and uh, I, he, I got past 45 and I said to my auntie Meyer and I said, you know, it's, uh, it's great. I'm 45 now. And you know, your dad died at 45 and I've got past that and I feel good. And she said, no, no, he was 52. <laughs> <laughs> so now you have to get past oh, that. Fuck. Another seven years. Oh, panic. <laughs> So I go past that. Anyway. There's another thing I just wanted to ask you about because you you sort of changed direction, didn't you? At one point, I mean, you were. Correct me if I'm wrong about this, but you were doing the Scottish play on Broadway, and this is what I heard. And then you went to see Patti Lapone in a musical down the road on Broadway, and you thought, "I want some of that." And you, no, it you, wasn't. It wasn't on Broadway. Was it? It was not? in England. Yeah, oh, I was right, doing okay. Macbeth in uh, in Stratford. Right. And uh, either I just finished it, or I would whatever. Patty Lapone, who I who I had worked with on Broadway in mm-hmm. uh, Accidental Death of an Anarchist, 
Yeah. Um, she was in uh, Les Mis. Mm-hmm. And I had no feelings either way for musicals. I was looking at these people and they were having a fantastically creative time, full of emotion, full of life. And the audience is, you know, a couple of thousand people there and they're all completely taken with it. And I was thinking about but doing my best at Stratford where is the equivalent of beating your head against the fucking wall, trying to get, you know, some ring, something out of it. Um, and, you know, at times it was painful anxiety making on stage. And, um, and then I thought, I, I, want, I, I want to be doing this. It's given you a whole different sort of path to your career, hasn't it? I mean, it's, I've seen you in, you know, uh, My Fair Lady, and I saw you in, uh, yeah. in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and stuff like that. You know, it's it's sort of it does feel like it's giving you something that is so liberating and fun. I mean, really fun. It looks so much fun to do, Jonathan. It Musical, yeah. Oh God, it's. Uh, I did Miss Agon for two years, mm-hmm. and I could have carried on doing it yeah. um, because it's completely sung. I don't know what, what it is. It's like, it's like every night was like music therapy. Mm. And it was, uh, you, you get some real release, you know, it, it coupled with the fact that it was a big hit show and you've got, again, a couple of thousand people every night. Yeah. You, know, you weren't having to work to get the audience in. You were there to experience it with them. I had a very different experience when I came to do Oliver. Originally, it was what Cameron had offered me when. Um, we opened Miss Sagan. He said, I've got the ne- your next role. He said, I want you to do Fagin. And I was like, oh, God, I don't know if I want to do that. You know, it's a well-trodden road. And then I, I did a film uh, in Utah with River Phoenix, yeah. um, which culminated in River dying mm-hmm. um, before we'd finished the shoot. And we'd already had the most miserable, horrible time of my professional life trying to make that film with an actress who was an absolute nightmare Mm -hmm. and made life difficult for everyone. Um, And it was in the middle of that, and I called my agent uh, from Utah, and I said, if Cameron still wants to do uh, Oliver, tell him I'll do it, uh, because I don't want to make another film ever again. (laughs) And then so so Cameron went and, and set it up. And so it's about a year, 18 months later, I'm, I'm over my experience in Utah and I want to make more films. And now I'm committed. So, oh, fuck, I've got to do Oliver now. Um, and it's I hard. Had- it's, a, it's a different, it's a different, Oliver's hard in the sense that it's, you know, it's a really muscular story, but the Bart sort of lyrics and stuff, they're quite chirpy and up, aren't they? So it's sort of there's yeah. there's a it's a ba- it's an odd fit for the text, yeah. aren't, aren't they? The well, when I met Sam Mendes, uh, who was going to direct it to talk about it, he said then that he like you, you get a lot of directors when they approach a classic, they say we want to go back to the the, the original, you know, mm-hmm. to uh, and we're going to make it dark and we're going to make it. And you go good luck with that, mate, because mm-hmm. You can make it as dark as you want, but any minute now, I'm going to be singing in this life. One thing counts yeah, exactly. in the bank, exactly. I know. Um, and you're defeated. It's a wonderful show um, as long as you don't try to make it too dark. And Sam eventually, uh, you know, gave into it. It was um, it was really well produced. Mm. Um, but every night when I'd um, I had this, I'd start this song, pick a pocket or two, and every night. I go in this life, one thing counts. And I had this little man on my shoulder whispering in my ear, I can't believe you're doing this. I can't believe you're doing this. And then I was off prancing out the stage. But uh, I had a good time. The people, people loved it. Well, I mean, I just, I think the fact that you took that decision to turn, to go somewhere else, such a brave and and also paid off, you know, just two things before we wrap up. There's, Two things I would like to ask you. One is about nerves. I mean, do you get nervous? The time I get most nervous, uh, or did get most nervous, is I, I hate appearing as myself. Yes. And, um, you know, I can sing a musical. Um, I've, I've, got, I've got out of this in, a, in recent years. 
but singing as myself, you know, if I did a, a charity cabaret or something, um, where it's all about being judged. Yeah. And if I'm being judged as me, um, in my head, it's, I can't, I can't stand it. If yeah. I'm being judged as pagan, it's, well, it's fake. Hey, no, it's Fagan who can't sing. Not me. I can sing. <laughs> I mean, I think yeah. you, you have dragged me into a couple of those charities. I did a yeah. one with you, and I remember yeah. singing with Judy Dench, and I was thinking, what the hell am I doing? I can't sing. Yeah. I can't. It was brilliant, but I've never yeah. been so nervous. I have to say, yeah. the only person who was more nervous than me was Judy Dench. I mean, oh, absolutely. We had yeah. to push her on stage. But then, of course, when yeah. she got on stage, she was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I just wanted to ask you about is reviews and how do you read reviews and how do you deal with them? And, you know, what do they, do they play on you in any way? How do you deal with that? I think I've always read reviews, even though every time I've said, I'm not going to read reviews, uh, especially on stage, you know, in film, it's too late. You can't do anything about it. Some critics you think, uh, you want a good review from others. You didn't care what they thought about it. I always wanted to get a good review from uh, Michael Billington, yeah. who I liked a lot in The Guardian. Um, and I, there were times when um, I said I wasn't going to, you know, I told somebody I'm not reading reviews for the, um, say, Taming of the Shrew or something. And they said, oh, you should, uh, no, you should, you should. Uh, look at The Guardian. It's brilliant. Really good. So I thought, oh, okay, okay. And of course, Unless they say you're the best thing since sliced bread, yeah. it's never going to be good enough. Yeah. So I was like, why did I read it? I know. And then, uh, but you've got to read them all. It's the only way. I remember doing, I did Much You Do About Nothing in the West End. And I said to uh, everybody, it was Jenna McTeer and Mark Rylance. And I told everyone, I'm not going to read reviews. And then just before the second half started on the second night, Jared Kelly came up to me and said, Nickers Dion. Oh, what an idiot. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm not really. He said, no, no, it's fine. He said, but God, what an idiot. And then just as the music was starting, he said, wooden is not a word I would use to describe you. And I was like, <laughs> and then the, the curtain went up and I walked out and I was like, thanks, Jerry. That's <laughs> so either, I think you have to, I mean, what I do is I read them and just get through it. In the theatre, I think you have enough time to sort of, Remint it or be be inside it in the, in a way that is yours. Yeah, yeah. Also for me, and I mean, I know this sounds like bollocks, but actually, when I'm when I'm in something which isn't going well or hasn't been well received, I do tend to sort of learn through. And certainly, as a younger actor, I learned much more from those blind alleys I'd gone down, the cul-de-sacs I'd gone down, than I have by, you know, the successes I had as a younger actor. I thought, you know, there was the, it was the, it was the things that tripped me up that I thought, oh, well, I won't go down that again. I'm not going to do, this is, this isn't working or yeah. I'm loving this and they don't like it, but I love it. And I'm going to do it yeah, for me. Yeah. And this is the thing I love. And I'm, this is the yeah. thing I'm trying to do, you know? No, it's right. And I, I wouldn't have used the word wouldn't about your performance at all. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, I've got better than that. But look, Jonathan, it's great talking to you. Thank you so much for making time today. I know it's really, you're very busy. Uh, the Brazil is, as I said at the beginning, one of my favorite films. I think it's a, it's watching it again over the weekend. The stuff in it, which is so prescient to today, you know, the plastic surgery stuff, the way that we're governed, the sort of crazy bureaucracy that we we live yeah. in, that Kafkaesque nightmare. Uh, yeah. It's a brilliant performance, and um, yeah, and just thank you for today. All right, thanks, Peter. Who am I this time? is a Just Voices and Doolally production. Produced by Simon Lennigan. Music by Greg Hatwell. Edited and mixed by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. And presented by me, David Morrissey.